All right, good evening, everybody. We're going to pick up in the book of Ezekiel tonight. Ezekiel is the last of what we sometimes call the major prophets, along with Isaiah and Jeremiah. And the way that they're laid out uh, in your Bibles uh, is relatively chronological. Obviously, prophets foresee more than the events of their own life, and so actually Isaiah's reach reaches way beyond um, the lifetime of Ezekiel all the way into the New Testament with prophecies about Jesus. Um, But for the most part, Isaiah's life lives out uh, leading up to and enduring the uh, Assyrian removal of the ten northern tribes. Jeremiah comes on the scene after that, uh, leading up to and going through the Babylonian exile of the southern tribes. And Ezekiel, here in chapter 1, picks up near the last third of Jeremiah's life. In fact, the pages are going to open up not in Jerusalem or Judea, but in Babylon. If you remember from our study in Jeremiah, Ezekiel is one of those who is deported along with King Jehoiachin. Uh, before the final sacking of Judea. So Zedekiah takes the throne in Jerusalem as, uh, as Babylon's vassal, and a large constituency are resettled in Babylon, including Ezekiel. Now, that's of particular import for Ezekiel as a person, because Ezekiel is a Levite. In fact, more than a Levite, Ezekiel is destined for the priesthood. But now he's been removed from the temple, removed from Jerusalem, removed from Israel, and is now living out his life in Babylon, separate or severed from that fate. The Levitical background, the fact that he's a Levite, uh, of Ezekiel becomes a significant part of his thinking as well as his vocabulary, and so we'll talk about it throughout the book. But let's pick up here in verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. Now, it opens here by saying, in the 30th year... But it doesn't say in the 30th year of what, right? We don't really have a reference point for 30 years later for when this occurs. And it might be appropriate to suggest that it was the exile itself, whether dated from the sack under Jehoiachin or even the one that is earlier um, during the days of Jehoahaz. Uh, But uh, both of those don't line up with what happens Immediately after this, look in verse 2. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. So we have two dates here. One is very specific and clear. So since Jehoiachin was removed from the throne, five years, and then there's this introductory one that just says ambiguously in the 30th year. Scholastics and thinkers have suggested all sorts of solutions for this, but the most obvious and easiest one is that this is the 30th year of Ezekiel. In other words, at the age of 30, we open on the story 
of Ezekiel, there is a second reason why that's significant. According to Numbers chapter 4, verse 30, it is in the 30th year that Levites entered into the service of the Lord, entered into the priesthood. And so if you can think along with me in Ezekiel's own biography, he is preparing to enter his adult life of ministry, and then the unthinkable happens. Babylon storms the gates, takes the king, and one of the captives is Ezekiel himself, and his entire future ministry to the Lord is robbed from him. But it's in that year that his ministry does begin. He has a different ministry, the ministry of being a prophet of the Lord. The second thing I want you to notice is he has this vision in the 30th year. He is among the exiles by the Chabar Canal. And it's important before we begin this book, in fact, it's important before we look at the vision to try and put ourselves in the frame of mind of Ezekiel and his fellow captives. And actually, we can do that with a little bit of biblical help because we have a psalm that expresses the feelings of the Jews as they went into captivity. We know it as Psalm 137. And so if you turn back to the book of Psalms near the end, Psalm 137 records a lament, a song of sadness, of the Jews after the sack of Babylon. By the waters, verse 1 says of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So get, the, here, get the, um, the picture here. The Jews have been taken in chains, marched all the way to Babylon. They stop as they get near, probably their last uh, rest before entering into Babylon proper, by a river. And the captors, the generals of the armies, say to their captives, why don't you sing us one of the songs of Jerusalem? In fact, they probably have in mind the celebratory songs that follow Psalm 137, the songs we call the songs of ascent, the pilgrimage psalms that were sung on the way to Jerusalem. But these apparently have a history that they remember, and so they call for one of these songs, but instead the Jews take their instruments and they just hang them on the trees. We have no need to celebrate anymore, no need to rejoice anymore. They continue here in verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, and if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against a rock. So not only is there sadness here, but tremendous anger, right? They call for a blessing on anyone who will repay the Babylons and do to their young children as has been done to them. So they're feeling tremendous loss, but right at the center of the psalm, do you see what the greatest loss is? It's not the loss of their freedom. 
It's not the loss of the life of their children. It's the loss of Jerusalem. And remember how significant Jerusalem is to the Jewish mind. This is not just the place where God's king David dwelled and his descendants had ruled on the throne, but the place where the temple of God was, where the presence of God was. Israel was God's inheritance, his holy land. And now they were in a foreign land. So we can imagine here Ezekiel sitting like all of the other captives, a little bit in a haze, deep in sorrow and longing and filled with theological questions. The same type of questions that we have. God, where are you? God, what does this even mean? Are we so far off track? Is there any way back? These are the questions, no doubt, that are on Ezekiel's mind. And as we'll see, these are the things that the vision he has addresses. And so notice again in verse 2, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As most of the major prophets and many of the minor prophets begin, it begins with a commissioning. And those commissionings have a couple of um, elements that are relatively consistent. Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, we all see similar traits. All of them involve some sort of a vision of the Lord. All of them involve a commissioning, a verbal command to go and carry a message. Almost all of them carry some form of resistance or reluctance or a little bit of pushback, right? Not everyone has every element, but on average, these are the elements that make it up. Ezekiel really focuses on the visionary aspect, okay? Now, I just want to remind you of one more thing before we look at the vision itself. I want to remind you of the accusation that Jeremiah made against the false prophets, and he says, not only are they speaking a message that God has not given them, but they have never been in the throne room of God. They've never been in the council of God, right? They've never had this um, certification experience of a true encounter with God, right? Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Moses sees the burning bush, right, has this encounter with God. Jeremiah apparently has it as well, and he criticizes and he says, you've never even been to God's house. How can you speak for him? How could he have sent you? And what Ezekiel has here is a vision of the Lord's throne room, but remember again how striking this is, because he is not in Jerusalem. He's not in the Holy Land. He's not in Israel. He is in the land of of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal. And suddenly he has this vision, verse 4, As I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Now, these are the, um, the traits of God's presence consistently, whether you look in the Psalms, or if you look at uh, God's appearance on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, or again, the visions of Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, fire and wind and storms and clouds, 
That's what he's seeing is the presence of God. And continuing here, verse 5, from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Now he uses that word somewhat uh, loosely. We, we would say they were uh, anthropomorphic. They were, they were human-like. But the vision he has here is not of humans. In fact, notice right off the bat this unique feature, verse 6. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. Okay, and so their bodies are humans, but their heads have four faces. More details on that to come. They're winged. More details on that to come. And then notice that it says that they had the feet of calves and that their legs hung straight. Now, that's a weird thing to say, but as we'll see, these creatures are hovering. They're suspended. The idea here is as they move, their legs don't. Okay, they're just hanging, and they have another form, as we'll see, of locomotion. Now, this brings us into, um, uh, into elements of literature that we haven't actually really encountered in our study from Genesis to this point so far. Ezekiel is the first place where we, get to, uh, where we start to encounter the type of biblical literature that we refer to as being apocalyptic. Now, a lot of times we hear that word apocalyptic and we naturally think of the end of the world. But the word apocalypsis, which we get that word from in the Greek, just means to reveal. But when we talk about apocalyptic literature, here's the types of things that that always has. Okay? Um, so for one, it's always mediated by angels. And we'll see places in this where Ezekiel has a vision and his tour guide, if you will, of the vision is an angel. Remember the same thing for the book of Revelation. Also true of the book of Daniel, right? Daniel has these visions, and he's constantly turning to an angel next to him and going, I don't understand what I'm seeing. Can you explain it? Okay. Another element of apocalyptic literature is what we call esoteric symbolism. In other words, the prophets have visions all the time, and they involve things like baskets and grapes and birds and canker worms. But esoteric symbolism involves dragons and beasts and animals that can't be described as being earthly animals, right? It's esoteric as in, in the fact that the symbols themselves are otherworldly, not just the visions. Okay. And even here in the vision that Ezekiel has, the first thing he sees, he sees these, you know, um, these side elements of the appearance of God, smoke and light and fire. And then the first thing his eyes fall on are these four-faced, winged, calf-foot creatures. Okay. Now, I want to just lay out a little bit of caution here. Oftentimes, visions have symbolic significance. But when we're dealing with visions of God, that symbolic significance is tremendously strained for two reasons. One is because the prophets are always searching for words to describe the in, un, indescribable, right? It's not that they were made of bronze, but they were like bronze. It's not that they were humans, but they were human-like. John says all the time, I saw as if it were, right? He's searching for language to describe what he's seeing. 
Um, and the second thing is, what's most significant in the vision here is not its prophetic import, but its theological content. Okay? It's not trying to describe the world as we know it, but God as we cannot know him. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this vision is intentionally to be overwhelming, to be transcendent, to be kind of indescribable, even a little bit incomprehensible. The direct response of an encounter with God throughout the Bible is awe, silence, falling to your knees. Okay? It is overwhelming in its difference, in its glory. Uh, it, is, <clears throat> it is quite the event. And so, notice verse 8. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. So he says, let me tell you about the faces and the wings. Verse 9. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. Okay, and so imagine here these four angels are laid out kind of rank and file. Think of them as four corners of a square. And their wings are extended in such a way that they're touching one another's wings like a box. Okay. Um, and then notice here it says that although we're going to see they move, they don't turn and move, right? And recognize the reason we turn and move as human beings is because we like to see where we're going. It's not that we can't sidestep like a, a crab, uh, but we want to see where we're going. So we turn and then we move. Not so with these. They move in the cardinal directions, but they're always forward-facing, right? Because they have these four faces. That's what he's trying to suggest to us. He says, each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness, verse 10, of their faces, each had a human face. That's comforting. The four had a face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Okay, and so these four faces are human, lion, ox, and eagle. Okay. Now, again, we can search for the significance or the symbolism. It's not hard to see that these four animals, at the very least, serve as a pretty significant representation of God's creation on the earth specifically his creation on day six, right? This is a good, glorious representation of the best of the land animals. And we have the lion, the king of the jungle. We have the eagle, the king of the air. Uh, we have the ox, the most significant of the livestock animals. And then we have the human, the crowning, uh, the crowning cornerstone of God's creation. There are others who have pointed to other symbolism here. The early church fathers like to make a comparison between these four faces and the four books we have in the New Testament known as the Gospels. And so they would suggest uh, that the ox represents the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is presented as the servant of man, and that's what an ox is, right? It's a, a beast of burden, an animal of service. Um, that the lion would be the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is presented as king of the Jews, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That the man, the human aspect, represents the gospel of Luke, where Jesus is mostly the son of man and his humanity is stressed. And that the gospel of John would be the face of the eagle because John gives us the heavenly view, the divine view. Now the problem is, although those distinctions between the books work to some degree, 
They are man-made and supplied, and there are better ways to describe the differences between the Gospels. More importantly, nowhere is any connection between the purpose of those authors in their own Gospels or those Gospels in reference from other places in the New Testament is this connection made. Okay? What seems to be, again, significant here is that there is two things here, a continuity and a discontinuity, a worldliness and an otherworldliness of this, okay? Enough that we can see the creatures in our mind, right? That's how your, your imagination works. You can't actually imagine non-real things. You can assemble real things into non-real things, but you still have to borrow the parts. You can think of a pink elephant with the neck of a giraffe, but you're borrowing all those pieces, right? It's similar in this vision. There's enough overlap that we can picture what's going on, but we really can't compare here, okay? Um, now, notice, uh, so they have these four faces and then the wings. He says, each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wings of another, while two covered their bodies. And so they have two sets of wings, or four wings total. Two of them are extended out, constantly touching tips with the other angels, and the other two are covering their bodies. We won't get a good reason for that until chapter 10, but I'll just spoil it for you. It seems to be an expression of modesty, an expression of the fact that they're in the presence of God, and so they hide themselves beneath their wings. Okay? Um, now, verse 12, each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. Okay, so again, they have this locomotion, and the first thing we learn about the locomotion is that it doesn't involve their feet. The second thing we're going to see here is that it also doesn't involve their wings. Okay, uh, so notice verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, the appearance of torches moving to and fro and among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. Okay, so let me just add one more element here. We've got brightness, we've got glory, uh, but we should probably include terrifying, right? This is, this is fiery, and it's as if lightning is shooting out of it. It is, uh, it is a scary event. And then verse 14, the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. And so we learn another thing about their movement here. It's incredibly quick. As if they're darting around, but as they do so, it's moving straight without their feet, without their wings. Verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. Okay, so they're, they're gem-like. And the four had the same likeness. Their appearance and construction and being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Okay, now here's where things get really hard to wrap our head around. What does he mean here by saying that each of them had a wheel beneath them and then a wheel within a wheel? One possibility, uh, and this is part of ancient wheel design, is effectively that the wheel has two parts, kind of like the wheel on your car does, right? There's the wheel itself and then the tire. And so we could go, maybe that's a wheel within a wheel. In fact, maybe it's like these modern rims that some cars have where they can spin. The rims can spin apart from the wheel, right? Um, but more likely, because he's trying to describe this motion, generally, 
it's not just human beings that turn before we move. We have to turn wheels as well, right? And so when you pull your car out of a parking lot, you first turn your wheels the way you want the car to go. But as we're going to see here, it doesn't really matter which direction these wheels move in, they just roll. And so it may be that what he's describing here is almost like a gyroscope, a wheel within a wheel, both on a different uh, range or, uh, uh, or plane. And so the wheel can roll in either direction and still move forward like the wheels on an office chair. Um, but either way, again, he is grasping for language here. Verse 17, when they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Okay, And so the wheels themselves on the side are full of eyes. And again, maybe he's just talking about rivets. Right? We can picture a wheel um, that's been reinforced and has studs all around it. Uh, but maybe, and we'll see, we have pretty good reason to believe this, uh, he's actually talking about eyes as in the, the anatomy um, of eyes. Okay. Um, and so, overwhelming, he, he says that the vision was awesome, the wheels were massive, and when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Okay, so not only do they move left and right and back and forward, but also up and down. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now, here, I think, is the first thing that really matters in this. Why does he spend so much time talking about the locomotion of these angelic beings? Okay. I think what he is suggesting here, and it, this makes sense, uh, um, as we're going to see, these angels are basically the foundation, if you will, of God's throne. And so they're beneath the throne in the same way that if, if somebody was riding in a chariot, the wheels are beneath the chariot. Okay. And so the idea of the locomotion here is some, uh, in some way expressing God's omnipresence, his everywhereness. Think of what it says in Psalm 139. The psalmist is meditating on the fact that God has made him fearfully and wonderfully. And then he asks later in the psalm in verse 7, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? If I ascend to the highest of heavens, behold, you are there. If I dig myself to the deepest of the underworld, behold, you are there. But do you see why this lesson would be significant for Ezekiel and his compatriots? They feel far from God. And here they ha Ezekiel has a vision of God's mobility. Now, at this point in the message, there's enough ambiguity that we can see this as being positive. A message of comfort. You may feel like you're alone, Ezekiel, but God is on the move. But what we're going to see as the book goes on is this is God moving in war. And his target 
is the same people that he's already sent into judgment. Because remember, it is Israel's sin that has led to their deportation. And they are still stubbornly persisting in their rebellion against God. There's more work to do. And in this case, God's omnipresence doesn't become a symbol of comfort, but one of significant fear. Because it says that God's judgment is inescapable, right? This is what Jonah found out. Jonah thought, I can disagree with God and get away with it. I'll just, you know, book it out of Israel. I'll just buy a ticket to the farthest away place I've ever heard of, the land of Tarshish, modern-day Spain, the other end of the Mediterranean, and that will preserve me from not doing what God asked me to do. But God, very clearly in the book of Jonah, chases Jonah down. He can't escape. And isn't that a direct implication of Psalm 139? Where can I run from your presence? Right? It's inescapable. And so that's what's being suggested here. In fact, notice verse 22 makes this connection between these angels and God's presence explicit. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Okay, so this beautiful translucent foundation, this is another thing that is consistent. When there's visions of God's throne room, the first thing we see is a translucent and beautiful foundation, what he calls here in the ESV, awe-inspiring crystal. Verse 23, under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight towards one another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, and the sound of the Almighty, a sound of a tumult like the sound of an army. Okay, and so there's also a loudness here. And in describing the loudness, he says, it's like a great beating of wings, but remember, their wings aren't moving. He says, it's like the sound of the Almighty, Right, of God himself dressed for battle. It's like the sound of armies. It's overwhelming, again, auditorially. So he's overwhelmed in the vision. Now he's overwhelmed by the sound. And then it says at the end of verse 24, when they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above, the expanse over their heads, when they stood still and let down their wings. Okay. Now we're not told at this moment what the voice says, but let me just suggest appropriately what this voice accomplishes is as if the voice said, up here. Ezekiel's attention is fully drawn to these angels and he's thinking of this expanse as a ceiling. But the vision's just getting started. He's only seen, uh, you know, the, um, the opening act or the trailer. He's only seen the foundation of what's going to be God's throne. And the voice draws his look, his gaze, away from this overwhelming appearance, flashes of lightning and fire and angels with four faces and all these things to uh, consider what was above. And so um, verse 26, And above the expanse, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human And so again, we see a throne here, and when he gets to describing who's on the throne, it's the likeness of a human appearance. Not just the appearance of a human, not just the likeness of a human, the likeness of a human appearance. He's using quite a bit of distance here. Um, Interestingly enough, 
oftentimes when we encounter the throne of God, we don't encounter much of a description of who sits on it at all. And so, uh, so in Revelation, he just describes the throne, and it's as if it's not occupied. It probably is, but he doesn't seek to describe it. Uh, in another passage, we see merely the feet of the one on the throne. In Isaiah, he sees the train of the robe, but the robe wearer is, le- is left undescribed. It's only when Jesus is directly attached to these visions of God's throne room that we start to get a full description. In fact, you can make a pretty close comparison between the things that we see here and a good deal of what John sees in Revelation, um, including his vision of Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 1. And so he sees this throne, and on it is like a human appearance, verse 27, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, appearance of fire. There was brightness all around him. Okay. And so it's, it's as if he can only see the midriff of this figure, and everything else is just encased in flame and in smoke. And then notice this in verse 28 like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around, which I assume means in technicolor, right? What he's seeing here is full of light and color, um, refracted light, like a rainbow all over. Um, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so as I always told you, this vision of, the God is, of God is coupled with a human response, which is just literally to be overwhelmed. Okay. And I would suggest that that is the cutting edge or the punchline of the vision itself, even for us today. When we try and discuss God's transcendence, it can be very difficult for us to even keep that in mind because God has made so much effort to communicate who he is to us, right? Uh, To the degree that the Son of God takes on human flesh and hugs people with human arms and consoles people with a human voice and heals them with a human touch. That's an amazing thing. But when we talk about who God is in his, in his fullness, transcendence basically means take any description or any degree that you can imagine, however big, however strong, however beautiful, right? Any, <coughs> anything that describes in degree or any container that you could shape to understand God, transcendence means he's bigger than that. He's more than that. He won't fit in the confines. Obviously, another thing that's expressed is God's uniqueness. Now, those, uh, what will be called soon cherubim, the angels we see here, are pretty unique. You've probably never met one, right? But there are four of them. Four exactly the same, operating exactly the same way. But the one on the throne here is without comparison. He's wholly, completely other. And that leads to some of his indescribableness. But it's important that we recognize that God is not giving Ezekiel this encounter just for the experience alone. In other words, this isn't just for the sake 
of an encounter. It's a commission. And so he doesn't just have a vision, but the vision comes with a message. And the message speaks to Ezekiel, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. Now, notice that phrase, son of man. It is the most common phrase used of Ezekiel throughout the book. Whenever God speaks to Ezekiel, this is how he addresses him. And the word simply just means one of the humans. Okay? I love C.S. Lewis's expression for human beings uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. right? Constantly connecting us with our heritage. Here, though, the purpose isn't to remind us of our ancestors. It's to remind Ezekiel of his smallness. He's having an encounter with the creator, but he is merely creation. He is just a son of man. Um, and so it's, it's, a, uh, it's a word that puts Ezekiel in his place, and he calls Ezekiel to stand back up. And he says, when you do, we'll have a conversation. Verse 2, and he as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Okay? And so don't get the idea here that Ezekiel kind of shakes off his overwhelmingness and gets up and dusts himself off. It says here that the Spirit came into Ezekiel, and there he found the strength to stand. This is something you'll also see in these visions, but there's another reason why I think this is significant. If you remember... Adam begins life as just a shaped pile of dirt until God gives his spirit, he breathes into him, and then Adam becomes a living being. I would suggest to you that this son of man, as we're going to see, is going to be a stand-in for a new humanity. And by the time we get to chapter 37, we're going to see this valley of dry bones, and suddenly there's a whole lot of new humans. But Ezekiel is the prototype the spirit-filled human, right? And so there's a play here on the original creation of Adam as if it's happening again in a vision. And like we saw with Jeremiah, Ezekiel's not just going to carry the message, he's going to be shaped by it. He's going to be a prototype of the invitation he makes to Israel. And that begins all the way here in this first vision. And so notice here, he speaks to him, verse 3, and he said to me, son of man... I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Now, usually, when God talks about Israel, it's my people Israel. Okay? In fact, it's so often my people Israel, the whole world is divided into two groups in the Old Testament. My people Israel and the nations. But notice here, it's the people Israel who are the nations, the goy. Okay? All of their distinction, all of their uniqueness, all of their special relationship with God has become questionable because of their behavior. They've gone after the gods of the nations, they've behaved like the nations, and so even the opening language here speaks of judgment. And we'll see that that continues and so they are a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They, are their, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord your God. And whether they hear 
or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And so just like we saw in Jeremiah, the gauge of Ezekiel's ministry is not going to be the receptivity of Israel, except to this one little thing, that when all is said and done, everything in Ezekiel says is going to come to pass, and nobody will be able to deny that he was a prophet of God, that he spoke for God. But there's no promise here of receptivity. And so, because of that, because he's sending him with a hard task to a rebellious people, he also comforts him with his protection. Verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Scorpions, be not afraid of their words. And so he says here, even if the experience is like trying to run through a prickly hedge or stepping on a scorpion's nest, don't be afraid, right? He doesn't see a positive reception here for Ezekiel. He says, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Even that language there, he calls them a house of rebels, not the house of Israel. Israel, remember, means to be governed by God. But they're not his house anymore. They're just a house of rebels. And he says in verse 7, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do you hear the contrast there? They may not hear, but Ezekiel, you will hear. They may not listen, but you, Ezekiel, will have to listen. Instead, he says, Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written words of it uh, of lamentation and mourning and woe. Okay. Obviously, this is going to be the message that Ezekiel's called to convey, but before he can speak it, he has to receive it. And here, the receiving is as if he has to eat it, to chew and swallow and digest it himself. He had just said, right, they may not listen, but you must listen. They might not be receptive, but you, Ezekiel, eat these words. But we're told up front what the message is going to be, lamentation and mourning and woe. And then the last thing I want you to notice is it says that the scroll was written on both sides. In other words, it's full. Okay? It's not a short message, it's complete had to turn over the paper and write all of the backside as well, right? No margins. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice here is the passivity of Ezekiel throughout this whole passage. Has Ezekiel spoken at this point? No. And even when he's called to eat the scroll... He's fed, almost force-fed the scroll, right? The only thing he does is allow himself to eat the scroll. He doesn't, you know, it's not like Peter in Acts chapter 9. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. That's not what happens here. Ezekiel is just submissively responding to God's will, but he doesn't seem to be an active player. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 3 he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, that's surprising, isn't it? I mean, not just because he's eating 
ink and parchment. But the message, right, is one of bitterness, of lamentation. It should taste like tears and suffering. It, clearly, this statement here is to be a surprise. And as we'll see as we look at Ezekiel, like we saw in Jeremiah, there is judgment to come, but that's not all there is to come. There's comfort on the other side of judgment. There's restoration on the other side of discipline. There's a good news to the bad news of Ezekiel. And so he tastes that. He experiences that right up front. Verse 4, he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to the many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. He says, I'm not sending you across a linguistic barrier. I know that you're now living in Babylon, but this message, Ezekiel, isn't for the Babylonians. But he's not pointing this out, not, he's not pointing this out just to limit Ezekiel's message, but unfortunately to make another criticism of Israel, Israel through a contrast. Look at what he says here. He says, um, surely at the end of verse 6, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. He's like, even with the language barrier, even if you speak out in, in bold Hebrew, and they don't understand a lick of it, it's likely they would respond better than Israel's going to, even though they know your mother tongue, right? And so really, this is just a way of, again, enforcing how stubborn Israel is. Verse 7, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Now, we've already seen this pattern. God is not just making a guess in the dark. He has spoken many times to this nation. And not just to the descendants of this nation, but this actual generation for their entire lives has been under the ministry of Jeremiah and has been unresponsive. And so he says, they're not going to hear you in the same way that they won't hear me. And actually, Jesus makes a similar warning to us today. That's why he says, rejoice if the world persecutes you. If they hated me, they'll also hate you. We carry the same message. We speak and it's the voice of Jesus that is heard. And so the response is determined not by us, but, but by their response to him. He says, because all of the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their forehead. And we saw similar language in Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah was told that he would be as a bronze wall. God would make him stand against the resistance of his enemy. But there's an especially interesting thing going on here. And that has to do with Ezekiel's name. Ezekiel's name means strengthened by God, or literally hardened by God. And here he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to harden you. I'm going to strengthen you uh, so that you'll be able to stand against those who stand against you. And so he says, fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And so we've seen they were a rebellious nation. We've seen that they were a house of rebels instead of the house of Israel. And now we see they're your people, Ezekiel not my people. We see similar exchanges between God and Moses uh, back in the book of Exodus. And so here is the calling 
of Ezekiel. He has this overwhelming vision, and then he has this commission, and he's set forward. The question is here, how is Ezekiel at this point feeling about this commission? You may remember Moses, when he has a similar vision of the burning bush and then is given a commission, goes, boy, that sounds all great, but I think you've got the wrong guy. He says, but what if they won't listen? And God explains what to do. And he says, but I, I'm not a very good speaker. And God explains. And eventually, eventually, he realizes, you know, God says, I'm the one who made your tongue. And on top of that, I'll bring in Aaron and he will assist you. But you're going to do this, right? In the same way, Jeremiah says, but I'm just a youth. If we read this just at first glance, it seems that Ezekiel's on board. And like I said, he was built for, designed for, destined for ministry. Is he chomping at the bit for this commission and rubbing his hands? I would suggest to you that his silence so far is actually pointing to something else. In fact, notice how much of the last four or five verses we read were bolstering to Ezekiel, telling him, don't worry, I'll make you strong. Don't be afraid. God doesn't waste words. Every time somebody in the Bible says, fear not, we can assume fear is right? And so Ezekiel needs to be encouraged, but I would also suggest to you that this passivity is not submission on Ezekiel's part, but an expression of God's sovereignty. As we're going to see, Ezekiel doesn't really have a choice in this matter, and he's not feeling great about it. And God is going to make clear the pecking order, if you will. And so notice verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. And the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness of heart in my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Remember what Jeremiah said? Things got so bad at one point that he said, I tried to close my mouth and no longer speak. He says, but the word of God burned within me and I had to let it out, right? In the same way here, what we find in his own emotions is bitterness, maybe even resentment, right? He does not want to do this. He does not want to be a part of this, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon him, okay? Any of you who have ever tried to get children to go a place they're not wanting to go knows what this is like, right? There's a straining against where you want them to go and a hand pushing firmly on their back, you know, moving them where they want. That's the vision we get here. Verse 15, and I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Chabar Canal and I sat where they were dwelling and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Okay, so he comes to and then he walks to where the exiles are and remember he has a mission to give But instead, he sits down and he's just overwhelmed and therefore sits in silence for seven days. I want you to remember the length of that period because I think that's the last nail in the coffin about Ezekiel's reluctance, as we'll see. So, verse 16, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And so here, he doesn't have another vision, but the word comes to him. And in Jeremiah, we saw he has this vision and this commission, and then the word comes to him and his ministry officially begins, right? But that's not what this is. 
this isn't, all right, here's the first piece of mail I want you to deliver. It's a rehashing of things we already know. In fact, it's a, uh, it's a communication that helps Ezekiel understand the consequence of him continuing to sit in the mud and in silence. Listen, verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require of your hand. See what he's saying here? He's saying, if I give you a message, and that message is a warning that says, watch out, your way leads to destruction, and you bite your tongue, and they are destroyed, he says, they'll deserve the destruction, but I will hold you accountable for their death. The image he uses here is of a watchman, right? This is someone who stands and watches out for enemy armies on the prowl and warns those who are in the city, and usually in their beds, right? Watchmen are most important at night and calls out and says, you know, attack, attack, fire, fire, these types of things. And we would recognize, right? In fact, I think we still have modern equivalents of this where we hold accountable those who were caught sleeping on the job and because of that cost the lives of others. That's the paradigm here. Why does Ezekiel need to know this? Because he's reluctant to do this. And so he goes, okay, here's what you need to understand. I don't have, you know... Uh, some sort of redundancy in the alarm system. I'm holding you accountable. You are responsible for this. He gives another illustration, verse 19. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. He says, second example. You go to a guy, you give him the warning, he doesn't heed it, and he dies. He says, but you will be delivered. Now, that's important for Ezekiel, right? Because he already has good reason to believe that his ministry will be unproductive and unconvincing. And so what he says here is effectively, Ezekiel, I hold you accountable for the conveying of the message and not its consequence. Right? I hold you accountable for being the watchman and calling out, but at that point, their responsibility is their, is their own. And I think that is a very good reminder for us. The New Testament makes a big deal out of the fact that God has commissioned all of us as Christians to be his witnesses. But that's not a commission to make converts. Even Jesus says that he's the one who builds his church. Instead, it's to be faithful witnesses, to give testimony. To use another metaphor uh, that Jesus gives us in the parable, our job as sowers of the word is just to sow the seed. But it's the condition of the recipient, the soil that the seed lands on that determines if the seed bears fruit. We're not responsible for that. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God is kind of like just casting out a dragnet. And some of the things you're going to get are real fish and other things are just trash. He's like, but don't worry about it. Just throw the net. Right? Ezekiel has the same promise here. But if he has the same promise, we should recognize we also have the same responsibility. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And what happens is Samaria, the capital of the ten northern tribes, has been surrounded by the armies. And they're just being, uh, being besieged and they're starving. 
And there's four lepers sitting in the gate, and they're in an awkward position. Because as they are lepers, they're not allowed to be in the city proper. But just over the hillside are these armies, and so they're just kind of stuck there. And they're having the last conversation, the one where there's no options left. And so one of them says, what are we going to do? Even if they'd let us in the city, there's nothing to eat. So if we go in the city, we're dead. He's like, if we stay here, we're still going to die. And so he says, why don't we turn ourselves over to the enemies? Now, that's not a good option. What would a foreign army want with four lepers, right? Extremely contagious individuals. But it's the best option of a bunch of bad options. So they dust themselves off and they walk to the camp and God sends the sound of chariots in such a way that the army is overwhelmed by the sound, thinks that somehow the Egyptians have come to assist Israel, and they run. And so when the lepers get there, they find the tents of their enemies completely empty. And they got out of there so fast, they see sandals on the road, there's horses half-saddled, and when they get into the tents, it was dinner time, and meals are laid out uneaten. And so they go from tent to tent, and they eat, and they dress themselves in probably the nicest clothing they've worn since their diagnosis. And they take some of the wealth that they find and they bury it to come back for it later. And then one of them speaks up and he goes, this isn't right. There's a city just over those hills that is literally starving to death because they don't know God's deliverance has already been made. The food is there. The victory is won. There's a whole world, a whole city that doesn't know it. They say, if we don't go and proclaim it, those deaths will be on us. That's the same responsibility that God expresses to Ezekiel here. It's the same one we have as Christians. We have a message to carry. And that comes with a responsibility to carry it. Not to convert the world, but to proclaim Christ. Ezekiel's commission is the same. He gives more examples. Verse 20, again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice... And I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. But, but you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at his hand. So if a good man goes wrong and you don't say, hey, turn around, wake up, that, that thing you just tripped over, that's God's fence to keep you from going over the cliff. Right? Same scenario here. But, verse 21, if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took your warning and you will have delivered your soul. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there and he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley and there I will speak with you. So I arose and I went out into the valley and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory I'd seen by the Chabar Canal and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. Does that seem strange? He's out with the people. God moves him into a slightly private place, probably a place where he can just fall down without being in the way, right? Some open field. He shows him the vision again, and then he says, go home and lock the doors. Okay. Here's what we need to understand. God has graciously recommissioned Ezekiel. But things have changed. The plan has changed. The way God's going to go about this has changed. And so notice what happens here. Verse 25, You son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I'll make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, 
so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. Now, when we read that at first, it sounds like here God has raised up a messenger, he's given him a message, and now he's going to cover his mouth and say, but I'm not going to let you tell anything because they deserve what's coming. But as we keep reading, that's not the case. In fact, although here it says that he can't leave his house, and here it says that he can't open his mouth, he's going to do a whole lot of both, starting with the next chapter for the rest of the book. What's actually happening here is Ezekiel loses the ability to go where he chooses and say what he wants. In other words, Ezekiel, as a normal human being who has his own opinions and own conversations and has his own hobbies and stuff, all of that is shut down. He is now restricted to only speaking for God and only going where God sends him. He says, but, verse 27, when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now, this doesn't last Ezekiel's entire life. It lasts until the destruction of Jerusalem, the one that we finished with at the end of, uh, at the end of Jeremiah. But here's the interesting thing. We're going to be told that when that happens uh, in chapter 3321, it's seven years after Ezekiel's commission. And so this condition, this discipline of totally being tied with cords, if you will, and tongue-tied as well, it lasts for seven years until the destruction of Jerusalem. But there does seem to be a correspondence here, doesn't there, between the seven days he sat in silence doing nothing and the seven years he serves in silence, enabled to do otherwise, unless God opens his mouth. It's similar to what happens when the angel Gabriel comes to the father of John the Baptist, a priest named Zechariah. Right? And this is a big deal, because if you chronologically look at the story the gospel tells, the story begins here, with Zechariah in the temple, and an angel appearing to him. And the reason that's important is because we call the 40 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, or in this case Luke, the years of silence. God has not spoken. There's no prophets. No scripture is composed. No appearances of heavenly angels. No visions or prophecies at all. And so when this angel appears to Zechariah at the temple, it's the first time in 400 years Suddenly something new is about to happen. God is about to speak, and the message he gives is one of tremendous hope. Effectively, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah that we've been talking about. All of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled, and Zechariah balks at it just a little bit. He just says, no, you must have the wrong address. Me and my wife are barren, and we're very old. And the angel says, because you did not believe the words that I told you, you will not speak until the day your son is born. Do you see what that does? It extends the silence of God for nine months because of the unbelief of Zechariah. In the same way here, Ezekiel basically goes through a disciplinary period. He's put on parole. His resistance is futile. <laughs> And he's going to learn it here. He's going to remember that God made his tongue and can close his mouth. That God shaped his body like we you know, talked about in Psalm 139. Made all of his inward parts beautifully and wonderfully made. And he can stop them from working. 
Unlike Jonah, Ezekiel doesn't even get the chance to run. He just ends up waiting in his house until God looses him for doing the right thing. It's very similar to the way that we discipline certain forms of pets, right? In fact, it's very similar to the way that almost, almost I had to endure for my speech impediments. You can't really tell now, but when I was a kid, in kindergarten, I couldn't say my J's, my S's, my CH, my SH, my Z's, and my TH's. Which is pretty much everything. And when your name is Justin Thomas, that's, that's your whole name. Okay, so it was very apparent. I spent eight years in speech therapy. Uh, and for a long time, they were talking about a very aggressive version of this. Because as you can imagine, if I can't say my SH's and my TH's, what is my problem? It's a lisp. Right? I have bad tongue control, and that forces me to, to say things funny. So what they had was this headgear with a prick, a little spike. Okay? And if I had used that particular gear, basically I would have trained my tongue not to leave my mouth because every time it did so, it hurt. Right? It's the same philosophy that God is using here. Again, the message that he is giving is Ezekiel is, I didn't ask you if you wanted the job. We didn't sit down and negotiate. I have called you. I have summoned you. You are going to do it. And there is an easy way and a hard way. And Ezekiel learns the hard way. And I actually find this to be a tremendous evidence of God's grace for two reasons. Okay. One, because just like Jeremiah, by the end of Ezekiel's life, Ezekiel's going to have no regrets. God knows better that his ways are good. Ezekiel is wrong to worry, wrong to be afraid, wrong to resist God's will, and he will learn that. But two, because we find in Ezekiel an example of Israel and human beings itself. Who is being stubborn in the story so far? We haven't even encountered another Israelite, and we don't need one to see the stubbornness and the rebelliousness you know, to some degree, it's directly comparable to Saul of Tarsus, isn't it? What is it that God speaks to him when he, when he blinds him and knocks him down on the road to Damascus? How hard is it, is, Paul, for you to kick against the goads? Right? I've been disciplining you. I've been pushing you along and you've been resisting. He's like, that's the hard way, but there is an easy way. There is a good way. And it's open even to a man like Saul. And it's open even to a man like Ezekiel. And like I said, Ezekiel here becomes not just the carrier of God's message, but in some ways the medium is the message. Ezekiel becomes a prototype of what God's going to do, even with rebellious Israel. And so there's a lot of good to come in the book of Ezekiel. Let's stop there for tonight. tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your multifaceted grace, your manifold grace, Lord, which takes so many forms. Sometimes it takes the form of comfort, and sometimes it takes the form of discipline. Sometimes it's what C.S. Lewis called a severe mercy, where it hurts so deeply, but it brings about healing. And we want to recognize and own up to the fact tonight, Lord, that you have also given us a calling and a commission. You have made us your witnesses and called us to proclaim your gospel. And that doesn't mean for all of us that we need to leave the country or learn another language or take up a full-time job as an evangelist or a pastor or a missionary. 
but it does mean that you have given us a mission. And yet you haven't left us on our own. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the word which is living and powerful. And you've given us the same promise as Ezekiel. That our call is just to be witnesses. Not persuaders or converters. We're not the prosecuting attorney, Lord. Or the judge of other people. We're just a testimony. I pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful in that. And I pray, Lord, for the places where we're stubborn in that, that even where we're stubborn, Lord, we ask that your will would win, that you would soften our hard edges, and that you would show us the goodness, not only of you, which we know in theory, even if we forget sometimes, but also the goodness of your plans for us. I pray that you'd teach us, even against the grain of our own heart, that the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places, Lord and that your ways are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.